Luke 5 and verse 17. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, Because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Let's watch. My friend has been paralyzed since childhood. He has no hope but you. Please, do for him what you did for the leper. That's a rope! Put it back, man! Certainly not the authority of any rabbi from Nazareth. Where did you study? Your faith 
is beautiful. Son, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right? But I ask you, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or rise up and walk? It's easy to say anything, no? But to show you, and so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, my son, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. A chance to watch the series, you should. The older Pharisee was Nicodemus. It's quite a tie into the story. Um, obviously, some of it's put in there that's not in the scriptures, but a lot of it is. So it's, it's a great series if you get a chance to watch it. How many of you remember, and this is dating, I know it's going to show how old I am. How many remember Paul Harvey? Anybody remember Paul Harvey? And what's his fame? What is he famous for? Yes, the rest of the story. You know, every. Almost every time I read an excerpt out of the Gospels, you think you know the story, and then the more you study it, the more you read about it, the more you look at the background of it. In watching this video, there are so many things that when you read the Bible sometimes, especially stories you're familiar with, um, you kind of tend to just run by phrases and sentences thinking that they're just filler or they're just you know, literary parts of the story. Um, but there's so much tonight, and, and I want you to think, maybe tonight you think you know this story, and maybe you do, but there's probably more to it. I hope that you'll say at the end, well, you know, now I know the rest of the story, and, and maybe know more about it, and especially, 
why this story is so prominent in uh, the gospel that we're going to look at tonight. Um, let me give you a little background, and we're going to build up to it. I'm going to put some features into it so we couldn't watch the whole thing before uh, he was let down and after he was let down and all that went. So let me fill you in on some things. This story takes place in a little town called Capernaum. Um, Matthew 9.1 has the same episode in it, and it says Jesus came to his own city. Mark 2 actually calls it Capernaum. The Sea of Galilee is 70 miles north of Jerusalem. It's, it was surrounded by many, many ancient fishing villages. That was the main way that people made money and survived back then. Um, Capernaum was known for a lot of things. The International Highway went through there, so they, got a lot, they were known for being Galilee of the Gentiles because a lot of travelers from other countries came through there. Levi, who was the guy sitting on the roof with the two kids writing down stuff, um, that was Matthew. He, his tax collection booth was right out on the edges of the city leading into Capernaum. That's where Jesus calls him. And I'm going to tell you a little later, there were so many amazing, miraculous things that Jesus did in that city. Um, it was amazing. But this is Jesus' home away from home. And let me build up to this event so you can put it in context. It'll have much more uh, meaning to you. If you look in Luke 4 and 5, which is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry um, at 30 years old in Luke's gospel, there are a number of stories leading up to this story. Um, in Luke chapter 4, in verses 31 through 36, Jesus is going to show that he has authority over demons. And the key word here to keep in mind is authority. So he can cast out demons. Demons do what he tells them to do. Um, rabbis always were people who were considered had authority, but their authority was derived authority. They would quote other raid, uh, sa uh, sages or rabbis from other days, and it was always what someone else said, and they would quote it. Jesus was particular, and it was noted that he had authority of his own because he could do things that nobody else could do, and he would say things that nobody else had said. And one of those uh, marks of his authority was over demons. In Luke 4, it also says that he had authority over sickness. And, and he also healed Peter's mother-in-law, which is, by the way, I'm going to show you in a minute. Um, they have, they believe it is the remains of that house where the roof was taken off. I'll show you in a minute on a slide. My wife and I were able to go to that house and stand right outside where this supposedly took place. And they've done all kinds of things to preserve it and cover it. I'll show you that in a minute. Um, but Peter lived in Capernaum. That's where they had their fishing business, right outside. And you'll see when I show the slide, they were literally from here to the parking lot from the water. So it wasn't far away at all. And uh, so that's where they were. And Jesus was known to be there. They probably were able to find Jesus in the right house because uh, periodically he would come back there. And it, it would always cause a stir when he came back. So it wasn't hard to figure out that he was home. Um, so, but he had authority over sickness. Chapter 5, first 11 verses, he has authority over creation. He is able to uh, show that he controls the fish. Mary, Peter, you know, says, Lord, we've done it all night. We can't find any. Toss it on the other side. And they find all these fish and bring them in. They can't handle the number of it. And uh, so he, he's able to control the water, the fish in the water. And then right before this chapter, these, uh, right before this story, two stories in a row, 5, 12, and 18 both begin with the word behold. And it, what it wants to do is get your attention 
That's thus the word behold, because he's building the story. It's like you're in a movie watching it, and you're coming to the climax, and you know the main event's coming up, and the the thing that's going to make everything different. And these two stories are that. The disease story of the leprosy, the leper being who was covered with leprosy, being healed completely, and then you have the story of the paralytic. These are the, these the, so to speak, the climax of these stories. So he's got authority over demons, sickness, creation, disease, and then he's going to have this story. And, and so Jesus has a peculiar kind of authority. But let me add another piece to the story. Um, if you were a Pharisee and you saw them on the screen, there were a number of them there. They had come to check Jesus out. They had heard what he was doing and wanted to keep, come from Jerusalem and Judea primarily. Uh, and they would come to see what he was all about. Um, but here's what you have to know, what's not going to be seen on the screen, is that Pharisees and religious leaders had categories for people. Uh, they would read Torah and know that certain people couldn't come into the temple to worship. They couldn't get near God. Um, and those people had categories, or they, had, they were put in categories. And some of these people included Gentiles, prostitutes, tax collectors, tanners, or people who worked with leather, lepers, shepherds, barren women, people with diseases, disabilities, deformities. All these people were considered unclean. They could not come to worship in a synagogue or in a temple, and they were considered that you needed to stay your distance from them, and they were not liked by God. That was the conclusion that they came to. And what was true of religious leaders was if God didn't like them, then they certainly didn't like them. And so they gave them a term, and and this is the way the gospel uses it, and even sometimes in Paul's writing, they call them sinners. Now, I know for us, we have it as a moral term. Sinner means you've done a lot of bad things, and we've all sinned, and that's true. The Bible uses it that way, of course. But it's also a sociological term, meaning it, it describes people who are in a category, people who God didn't like, people away from, and, and so if God didn't like them, the religious leaders didn't like them, then the average person was supposed to follow suit and stay away from them and not like them either. So the more that you didn't like them, the more you, they, the religious leaders thought that God would honor you. So if you treated really, really bad people like the paralytic because they were deformed or had problems and you treated them poorly, see, God would, they think God would honor you because God doesn't like them. And so if you did not like them, then God was honoring you for doing that. That's twisted, but that's the way they thought. Now listen, what does that mean for our story? That means that if you were a paralytic and you couldn't walk and you hadn't done it from birth, you remember the guy who was blind from birth in John 9? And what's the disciples' question? Who sinned, him or his parents? That was the prevailing theology of sickness and disease. If you're a cripple, that someone in your life, whether it was you or your parents, had done something wrong, something very sinful, and that type of disease or that crippling effect on your legs, that was a punishment from God. You were under God's judgment. That's another reason why you stayed away from these people. So you got this guy, and so see this paralytic that we saw in the video in this passage. He is a guy that is a social stigma every day. You don't have really friends. Nobody wants to be around you. No one really cares for you. Why? Because you're unclean, and to be around you means that you're honoring someone who dishonors God. So with that in mind, look at the story. The Bible tells us in the book of Mark that he had four friends, or people, men, who were carrying him. Now one thinks, why? You're shocked that this guy has any friends at all. 
Um, the guy who left at the gate, someone would leave the beggar there every day and leave him there all day. Um, that's usually how it went, and it usually had to be someone in your family. So, but he's got four people. We don't know who they are, but he's got four people who are really having the courage because to bring a paralytic into a public place where there's a crowded house with a bunch of people, right, and expect Jesus to have anything to do with him was defying logic. It was defying Torah. It was defying the religious leaders who happened to be present that day. So you, you know this. It has to take a lot of courage for people to publicly bring this guy to Jesus. Now, I haven't even told you the fact that they're going to do something even worse. They're going to go up the side steps of the house and they're going to break into the roof, which was very difficult, if at all, you could repair. And I'll tell you about that. And so they're going to wreck somebody's roof to have Jesus heal, quote unquote, a social outcast. So they're breaking about every social taboo and religious taboo possible that's taking place. So let me show you how they did it. If you want to put that slide up there. This is the literal picture of where you go, and I didn't bring the clicker, but um, the see the right by the water, it looks like a flying saucer kind of a place. If you go underneath that, in the middle of that, that's where Peter's mother-in-law's house was, um, according to them. And that, see all the outlying things on the left and around there and right, you can see it kind of goes down. That was about the size of a, a village in that day. That was Capernaum. And see all the houses, how they are small, with small rooms, and they're all connected, and they go in a village, and then they have a street on the left, and a street on the right, and around. And then the building right behind, the, the circular one that's square, that's got remains left on it, that would have been the synagogue, right? And so when you have Jairus, remember Jairus, who was the head of the synagogue? See, and he lived nearby. So you got Jairus living around there. That was the synagogue, and those are some of the things there. That building on the far right is a modern building, but, um, but th- look how close. That's the Sea of Galilee, and they're right on the water because they're fishers. That's what they did for a living. And, and Levi would have been on the other side down this way toward where the highway went down, and he would have set up his booth there. And so when you travel by the highway, you can't even compare them for business, then he would take your taxes. But that's where the house was. If you go to the next one, the next slide, this is kind of what those little houses look like. So you go in, there's a gate, Okay, so here's what happens. Remember, they come in, and why did they have to go and get him through the roof to begin with? You would have been outside the gate and come in the main gate, and then you would have had that little space in the beginning up there before the front door would be called the courtyard. And it's usually about 25 by 40 feet. If you want to know what that means, go outside and look inside the youth building because that is very, very similar in size. About the inside of the youth building, a little smaller actually, if you took the stage off, you'd be probably a little closer. But that's about what the size of that would be. And then that was outside the, the gate uh, where the cow is or whatever that is. Right? Um, there's all kinds of people there. And then on the inside with the courtyard, they're all smashed in there. And, and they're probably six to eight people deep all through there, all crowded in there. Jesus is probably standing at the door when he speaks. So when they come in, you you can't hardly get in. And when you get in, you have to probably go around the edge um, of it to be able to go. And and they couldn't get in. There was too many people. They couldn't move out of the way. And they wouldn't move out of the way, I would tell you, because he was an outcast. They're not making room for him, right, at all. So what do they do? They get in there, and I put it in my notes. Um, Now they are really, because they had a plan. They're desperate to get to Jesus, 
um, but now the plan isn't going as they thought it would because they don't know how they're going to get to him. So again, they're desperate for Jesus, right? So here's what they do. They come around the one side and see the stairs. They would go up the stairs around the outside. Now don't think this. If you look at this, the roof, they're all flat. Like this building is a flat roof. All of them had flat roofs. When Peter took the vision of Jesus told him, you got to eat all these food. Remember it came down on him? That's a flat roof. They would go up there and pray. They would go up there and have meetings. They could do things with their family up there. But it was always flat. So they went up there. On the, they carried the guy on the stretcher up the stairs, got on there, and probably the first third or half of the roof area had people who were standing as close to the edge as they could because Jesus at the door so they could either try to look down at him or to hear the words he's saying. So there's about every inch of this place is covered with people as much as possible. So they're not going to even get to the front of it to let him down in front of the door where Jesus is standing. They're not going to even be able to do that. So they have no choice, right? So here's what they do. About midway through, about where this you know, where that bucket is or about where the second shading of it is, back there, that's where they decide to come up with the plan that they're going to wreck the roof and they're going to put them down. Here's the question. Why would they do that? Why would those four people risk it? Why would they break through someone's roof and the social ostracization that that would cause be publicly identified with this guy who's an outcast because he's paralytic, and then they're going to break through the roof. Here's why. And Jesus mentions it. If you look in verse 20, it says this, And behold, some were bringing a bed, a man who was paralyzed. They were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in. So they tried the front entrance, they fight, tried the roof entrance, and there was no way to get him there. And when, they, when he saw their faith, that's verse 20. See it? When he saw their faith. So they, these people have faith. Now listen, this is not saving faith. It's not because they believe that Jesus is the one who's going to die for their sins. They don't know any of that yet. They have faith in what? Well, they have faith because they've been in Capernaum before that they know what he can do. Remember the lady standing on the top? In, the, in this chosen video, she saw Jesus heal a leper. This is the instance of the story earlier, outside of the city, on the way there. She saw that. And so she said, I know you can do it. So they have faith. They believe this. They have strong conviction that Jesus can heal this guy. So here's what they do. They are not interested and not really concerned or thinking about any of the forgiveness part, but they're going to come down and rip the roof open, and they're going to get this guy in because here's what they know they need. They need to be with Jesus. He needs to be in Jesus's presence. Now, I'm going to stop there just for a second, and I want to make it application tonight. In my pastoral experience over all the years, I have counseled, talked with people um, from outside the church, inside of our church, so many people that I come to, and they tell me their desperation story. They tell me about what's going on in their life. Um, obviously, not paralytic, but paralyzed in a lot of other ways. Um, their marriage is paralyzed, and they talk to me about relational problems that they have. Um, their marriage is falling apart. They don't know what to do with their children. Um, and maybe they're um, adult parents, and they still don't get along after all of these years. Or they come to me and say, Pastor Walker, you don't re- realize I'm so desperate. I, I, 
I came to church tonight because I'm so much in debt. I don't know if I can pay my debts. I'm not sure if I'm going to have the place to stay. I've heard all those stories as well. Emotional problems of people who are struggling um, with anxiety and depression, and they don't know where to turn, thinking about whether their life is worth keep living. I've talked about come to meet people with physical problems, um, and they have diseases, sicknesses, um, chronic pain of all shapes and sizes, personal problems that I won't even repeat to you tonight. And, and I often hear these types of things, and I've tried everything. I've tried everything. I don't know if these people had been to doctors. I don't know if they tried to do things in the past. But I've had people tell me, I've gone to the psychologist. I've tried to solve this pain and lack of peace in my life. I've tried to buy things, have things, cars and houses. I've been told that I've tried to make accomplishments and achievements in the world in which we live. I've told me, I've had people tell me in the, in the suburbs and inter- sex, drugs, alcohol, I've done all those things to find some sort of relief, some sort of rest, some sort of happiness. Um, they've tried to uh, change their identity to be someone they're not. Um, and then they say to this, you know, so I decided tonight that I, or this morning to come to faith because I'm going to try religion now. And basically they would say without saying it exactly like this, I'm going to try Jesus. I've tried about everything else. And I've, I've come to him. And, and I wonder, as I, I thought about all those stories and all those episodes and peoples that have come into my life, I wonder if the paralytic's friends were thinking, you know, really, Jesus, we went through all of this. I mean, do you know what it took for us to get to the roof and then to have the, the, the courage and the guts to take the roof off? I mean, and to put this guy down here in front of you so you're turning around now in the front of the the, the, the uh, door leading in the house and you're looking inside and now the whole thing that you were speaking about has been stopped and you've been interrupted. I mean, why would we go to all that? When you say to him, your sins are forgiving, I mean, they might have said this, hey, we really, to be honest with you, we didn't come for that. I mean, we didn't come for that. I mean, we didn't risk all this so that you could make a pronouncement of forgiveness on him. I mean, they wouldn't say it this way, but if it was 21st century vernacular, they might say, hey, be relevant, Jesus. Do you see the guy? I mean, is it pretty obvious to you? The guy can't walk. That's his real need. So we know you can do it, so let's get to what we came here for. I mean, they probably wouldn't have said that straight to him, but I'm thinking that's probably what they're thinking. The first words out of his mouth after all they went through was, your sins are forgiven. I mean, even the Pharisee at the window, other than the theological heresy that he thinks that is, is astounded by it. But people who are desperate for Jesus often want Jesus to change their lives. Not to challenge their lives. Not to take charge of their lives, but to change it. I mean, I've had people who I say, come back. And uh, people who come and ask for money. And people are really, really out of it. And they want the deacons to give them some help. And I say, come to church. And we'll talk to you after the service. Very rarely do they come to the service. They want Jesus to change their life, mainly meaning their circumstances. Change what's going on outside of me. For the paralytic, you know, I haven't walked since I was a kid. And you know how difficult my life has been. Can you change that for me? Change my marriage for me. Can you change my situation? Can you change my finances? Can you change my health? Can you change my relationship? Can you change my... And you, you fill in the blank. I've had people who basically by those comments and the way that they respond, they're more interested in external issues, not internal issues. They think that their greatest problem and the biggest difficulty they face is physical problems, not spiritual ones. 
And the reason is, please hear me, the reason is is because they actually are not interested in knowing Jesus. What they really want is to use him. They want to use Jesus to get what they want to better their lives. It's not that they're coming and the greatest thought is, oh, if I could just know Jesus, if I could just spend time. Not it. That's not it. They, they want to be with Jesus, but they want to be with Jesus so he can do something for them, so he can give them something. <clears throat> so I'm thinking in this text that these guys are wanting instant gratification. Change my life now on my terms, my way. Not rule my life now. And I've come to so many people, and ask yourself tonight, what do you really think, honestly, don't say it out loud, of course, what do you think your biggest problem and biggest need really is? You know how to answer that? What do you get most anxious about? What do you get most angry about? What do you get most depressed about? What really keeps you up at night? Can I tell you, that's the answer. The real answer. That's what you think your biggest need is. Have you ever heard stories, and I've heard a couple of them, even recently, I was trying to remember who it was, and talking to Chris at dinner tonight. Have you ever heard of a story, someone said, you know, I went to the doctor, I had a little bit of a problem, and I didn't know what it was, I didn't think it was much, and I went in, and they took a scan, and you know, that thing that I thought it was, it wasn't much at all, but when they were in there, they found out I had this problem. I didn't even know I had that problem. And that problem was almost life-threatening. Have you ever heard someone tell a story like, yeah, I thought it was this little thing. It would be nothing. And then it ended up being this whole thing over here. And you know what? They thought their problem was this big and it really wasn't that big of an issue until they really got the doctor to take a look at them and they didn't even know they had this big, huge problem that was going to threaten their lives. I think sometimes... I know lost people are like that. I think sometimes even as Christians we are, we don't realize what our biggest problem is. Let me tell you how our culture sees it because it's so true what's going on around. A lot of people think that the biggest issue right now, and it is an issue and it is an important one, so don't get me wrong, that the biggest issue we have in America is racial reconciliation. It's big and it's important, but it isn't the biggest. You know what our biggest problem is? Redemptive reconciliation. Because you know why we have racial tensions? Because we're sinners. So we need to work on the racial thing. There is no doubt about it. But you know what the bottom line is? We need forgiveness. That's what we really need. See, a lot of people think their biggest problem is their financial debt because their credit cards are overloaded and they don't know what they're going to do to get by. And, And do they realize it's not the debt that you owe to the bank that's the biggest problem you have. It's the debt you owe to Jesus. It's your sin debt. A lot of people mistake often. The horizontal relationships are the biggest problem I have. You know, my marriage is sinking. You know, I don't know why I can't get along with my sister or my brother. I don't know why as a parent that my children are acting that way. and behave. I, I, you know, I, I got to figure out. So I'm going to go to this conference. I'm going to read this book. I'm going to go to this psychologist. And I, you know what? And we think that not because those problems aren't real and important because they are. But can I tell you, in so many people's lives, see, I, see here's this problem, but that I ask them, well, where is God in any of this? And I don't mean just coming to church. Where is God in it? And now it's, I find it to be strange that we don't really live for God very often, very shallow relationship with Him on most days, if, if at any. And then we wonder why the horizontal ones fall apart. And we think that those are our real problems. Some people think even in this economy, as bad as it is, that their greatest need is they need to get a job, and please do if you can. 
But it's not the job need that's the greatest. It's the Jesus need, truthfully. Physical healing, and there are so many people who have COVID-19. I mean, didn't we just mention a myriad of people tonight who have physical needs, and they're important, and we pray for them, and we're asking God to heal, and obviously those are incredibly crucial issues. But beyond that, our spiritual ones are far greater. I am honestly more concerned, as Dave prayed tonight, that how people respond to their physical surgeries and problems than the fact that they actually have them. See, when Jesus looks at this guy, he shocks all of us. You know what he said? Because he doesn't say what we think he should say first, what the words out of his mouth ought to be, rise up and walk. He says it eventually, but he doesn't say it first, and there's a reason for it. You know why? Because the greatest need this guy had, he didn't know it, his four friends didn't know it, the crowd didn't know it, and certainly the religious leaders didn't know it. He needed to be forgiven He needed Jesus in his life in a way that he really hadn't counted on. Jesus had a holistic view. He says, yeah, I'm concerned about your body because I'll heal you in a minute. Don't get me wrong. Jesus cares whether you're sick or you have a disease or a surgery. He cares whether your marriage is falling apart and your finances are wrecked. He cares. He deeply cares about that. But it's something far greater than that that he cares about. He cares about your relationship with him first and foremost. Now see, if you don't look at the text tonight and you don't study and you don't look at that and try to meditate on it, can I tell you, you may not get that. Let me give you an illustration. I like water sports. I don't know if you do. I was a youth pastor, our youth leaders, the Bauerfelds. I don't know, I hope they might listen to this someday, but they had a, a, a ski boat. We went water skiing. And, and then when you water ski, I learned to water ski on two skis and then I learned to drop one ski and then I learned to ski on one ski and it's a lot more difficult, but they're all fun. And then the big tube, of course, maybe you've done that as well. But it's all across the surface of the water. But you know what? I found out that water sports or water things that are enjoyable are not just above the surface or on the surface, to go beneath it. And then, I don't know about you if you've ever done this, I went on a, a vacation, and my wife and I did this excursion, and it was called Underwater Walking. And you put this back then, this is way long time ago, you put this thing, you almost look like the guy in the bathosphere over your head, but you you put this thing on, it pumps air into it with a hose, and you're only like 15 feet below the surface on the, you know, on the, on the, the ocean bed down there, and you can look up. I mean, literally maybe from like here to the top of the balcony, that's all that you're down there. And so you're, it's a tube, and so all the fish are swimming around to you, and the, and the water just comes up to right here. It won't come up into your face or in your helmet, and it's kind of cool, but you're under the water. So you, you get a completely different perspective obviously, than when you're on top of the water if you're 15 feet under. I also had the chance on a different trip to go snorkeling. Now you get snorkeling as you go down there, and so I went down a little deeper. Now I'm not doing it because I don't, wouldn't enjoy it. I'd be too, believe it or not, afraid. I don't go scuba diving. I, I don't want to do it. I don't want to wear all that stuff, and I don't want to go that deep, and I don't want to see a shark up close. Um, so I don't do anything. But you know what? That's the deepest that you can go, really, other than being in some submarine or something, right? But see, that's what I think we need to look. See, tonight, I want you to see, that's what God wants you to do. He wants you to go deep into him. He wants you, don't stay, don't be comfortable with just the surface. Go lower, go deeper in him. And see, that's what this guy needed. (laughs) This guy needed to go more than the super shallow, superficial, I want Jesus to do what I wanted to do for me. I want him to heal me. No, Jesus says there's so much more to it. So much more to being in my presence and knowing me. And and there's a big difference between those things. So Jesus 
does this to do what? He does this to establish who he is. He is a rabbi. Remember our text, the context? He has authority, but not like any other rabbi's authority. He has authority over demons, sickness, creation, disease, and listen to this. And now he has an authority that nobody ever claimed before. He has the authority over sin. So let me tell you something. This is why, study your Bible, ready? In this culture, in Judaism, in first century temple Judaism, the way that you get forgiven through Torah is that you do what is right, and when you don't do what is right, you go to the temple, and they have a system there, and you get a sacrifice, and you bring the animal, and you bring it to the priest, and they kill it, and they spill its blood, they put it on the altar, and then you can be declared to be forgiven. And everybody who was Jewish knew that the way that you get your sins forgiven, that you can be declared to be right with God, is through the priest at the temple when you bring a sacrifice. Now watch. Everybody knows that. Even the people, the lay people who aren't that great theologically, they know that. Now you got Pharisees watching at the door, and imagine their utter amazement and anger, probably. Jesus said what the, only the temple could do. He didn't say, go to the priest and get forgiven, he didn't say, bring a sacrifice. He said it himself. He said, son, your sins are forgiven you. Now how, and Jesus knows. He, listen, <laughs> he's gonna, he says it on purpose because he's gonna set him off. Jesus sets him off on purpose. He does. Why? Because he reads their hearts and here's what he says. Why do you think, he's, he goes, why do I speak such blasphemies? He knows what they're gonna think. He knows what he said and what it means to everyone there. So what does he say? Because he wants you to know that he has authority. Now, here's what he says. See what's easier for me to do? I could say your sins are forgiven. And how do you know whether they really are forgiven or not? You can't tell because it's a subjective statement. I'm saying something and there's no tangible way whatsoever to prove it. But he's going to tell you this. He goes, but I'm going to heal this guy. And you know why? I'm going to prove to you that the authority that you can't see, that I say I have, I really do the authority you, that you can see. Right? So he walks over to this guy and says, son, so that they may believe, take up your bed and go home. And the guy gets up and walks. And Jesus proves who he really is, that he really does have the authority. And what's interesting in this text is that Jesus shows his authority over sin. If you read, and we don't have time tonight, but if you look in Luke's gospel Sinner, the word sinner, describing people's lives, is a theme all throughout the book. Starting here, going to the woman who was a sinner and at the table where Jesus was at in Simon the Pharisee's house. She wiped his feet with her hair and all that stuff. And the guy says he wouldn't touch her if he was really a prophet because she's a sinner. Zacchaeus was a sinner. The, the, uh, the, the, uh, the sinner, I should be the uh, tax collector in the uh, temple was a sinner. He said, Lord, I'm just, a, have mercy on me. I'm just a sinner. And, and, and so here's what people find. The people who are right with God, the people who know God, the people whom Jesus really takes time to be with, there are people who recognize that they're sinners. Peter said, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. And, and, and he, what's the point of that? Here's the point. Ready? Luke's gospel, and this story in particular, here's the driving point. Your biggest problem is not someone else, somewhere else, something else. Your biggest problem is you. It's you. Your biggest problem is your sin 
and your biggest need is forgiveness, no matter what the other problems in your life are. Jesus said, remember, in John chapter 2 and verse 19, he told the religious leader, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. What was he saying? He wasn't saying destroy the temple that took him 46 years to build. He meant, the Bible interprets it right there in the text. This is my body. If you destroy me, I'll, read, I'll raise this up in three days. And he meant his resurrection. You know what he's meaning? He's meaning this, that forgiveness still requires a sacrifice. I'm not saying that it doesn't. I'm not saying that Torah doesn't demand a sacrifice if you want your, I'm not saying that you don't have to have a temple. You have to have a temple and you have to have a sacrifice. But what I'm saying is it's not the building over there or the animals over there, it's me. See, that's what he's saying. When he says to the kid, I mean the guy on the ground, your sins are forgiven, he says, I'm the temple that all the other ones pointed to and I'm the sacrifice that all those ones pointed to. Now you say, okay, that's great. Oh, I love that. Fun. But what, so how does that help me? Look at the New Testament and see where the Apostle Paul and other Christians find their greatest confidence to face any problem they face. They're facing persecution from the religious leaders. They're going to face imprisonment. Paul faces stoning, beating, whipping. They put him in, in stocks. And you know what he's constantly saying? He's basing the confidence to face it all, knowing this, I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. Have you ever read Romans 8? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? For I am persuaded that nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see what Paul says? And in between those love, God loves me, those bookends, you know what he says in between? Well, here's what he says. I am, he says, I am more than a conqueror through him who loved me. Through this, he says, and, and, and I'm, he says, death and life and pers- you know, spiritual wickedness and enemies in high places and beaten and persecuted and prison and flogged. He names a whole list, 11 things. And he says, how does he face all those things? Here's how he knows. Because what grounds him is this one thing, I'm forgiven. I know the love of Jesus. He loves me and nothing can, set, so it changes everything. Did you see why Jesus said it first? You see why he wanted the paralytic to know this? Because, hey, maybe you're not going to face being a paralytic anymore, but it won't be the end of your problems. There'll be other things that come up in your life. And you know how you face them? Not because you can walk, but because you know Jesus. Lastly, can I tell you, application, and we're done. Last minute, really. Why does Jesus tell him, pick up your stretcher and go home? You know, go home is only used four times in the Gospels, three of them in different Gospels are talking about this story. One of them is the story of the maniac of Gadara when he tells him, I want to be your disciple. And he says, nope, don't follow me. You go home and tell people what great things God has done for you. But the, all three of the other one instances are this story repeated in the other synoptic Gospels. Why would he tell him, pick up your stretcher and go home? I don't know where in the town he lived or sat or whatever he did. But he had a home, and he had a family, and now he can go home. He can go home to his family. He can get a job. He can get back in synagogue. He can worship God. Because when Jesus forgave his sins, you know what it changed? Not just giving him a road and ticket to heaven. You know what it changed in his life? Everything. It changed his family, his social standing. It changed his religious access into God and with people. It changed vertically, horizontally. It, changed, it was the basis for everything in his life. 
So here's what he says. Go home. Or watch. Because I want you to go home. I'm, I'm elaborating. Go home. Keep that, take that stretcher with you. Don't leave it here because I want you to put it in your room because I want you to remember your stretcher story. Remember, go tell people what great things God, I don't want you to ever forget. Put the stretcher in the corner of your room and every day you're concerned about being depressed or, you, or anxious or whatever fearful or whatever it is, look over and say, oh, that's what God did for me. Oh, that's, that, oh yes. Remember, I used to lay on that stretcher every day and I'm gonna complain about that? Are you kidding me? I was on the stretcher, remember? I remember the stretcher story. But I don't think it was just that. I don't think his stretcher story was just for him. I think as he walks home with the stretcher, you know, everybody who knows him who passes by on the street, seeing him watch and, and lay there every day, you gotta, you gotta think this. If Jesus did that for him, Maybe he could do that for me. Can I tell you this? You know why God forgives your sins? Not for you only. So that people in your family, in your friends, in your neighborhoods, and the people around you, so that they could have a stretcher story. That they could come to know him. That they could see that Jesus isn't just a slot machine or a rabbit's foot or something good luck charm to give me all the things I can't get anywhere else because I've tried. No, he is the God who has the power to heal you on the outside, but most of all, heal you on the inside, what you really, really need. See, you don't know it, or maybe don't realize it, every single person here tonight, we have stretcher stories, every one of us. Maybe not physical ones, but definitely spiritual ones. Who's gonna hear your stretcher story this week? Who's the person who needs to know that Jesus can do for them what he's done for you? Let's pray. Father, help us. There's so many paralytic people around us, spiritually paralyzed. Some of them know they're desperate for Jesus. Some of them don't. And the ones that are, many of them are desperate, truthfully, for the wrong reasons. Because they don't know their deepest need. They don't know their greatest problem. But we do. Oh, Father, help us. Help us to tell our stretcher story because the Bible story ends and they glorified God. They were filled with awe and fear of him and they glorified God. His glorifying God led to their glory. Oh, wouldn't it be great if we just had services filled with people telling stretcher stories about how their friends got saved and that we could just continually, repeatedly give glory and honor to you? Oh, that would be so amazing. Lord, increase our stretcher stories at Faith Baptist Church that you might get the glory and others might get the good. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.